Well, good morning. Uh, can I just reiterate what Daph said? If you, also, if you don't have a Bible, please do raise your hand now. We would love you to have a Bible, and someone at the back uh, will bring that to you. And I'm just going to pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, and we ask that now the truth of your gospel uh, would shine into the heart of the lives of those who do not yet know you. And for those of us who do, that we will be persuaded this morning to continue to walk in your truth, in your name. Amen. Uh, You might remember at the beginning of this year, we heard a series on 1 John. Well, as Daph's already said, today, as we come to the close of the year, we're going to be looking at 2 John and next week, 3 John. 2 John was written by a man called, unsurprisingly, John. He was a disciple of Jesus and wrote five New Testament books, 1, 2, and 3 John. Easy names. He wrote the Gospel of John and the final book of the Bible, Revelation. This book, 2 John, was written around about 90 to 95 AD. In verse 1, you can see it's addressed from the elder, that's John, to the lady chosen by God and to her children. Now, it's likely that the lady is a term used to describe an individual church. John is writing this letter to a church, a community of believers, her children being the Christians in that church. At the end of the letter in verse 13, you can see that John says, the children of your sister, who was chosen by God, send their greetings This seems to be John's own church, perhaps in a nearby city, with the two churches and their members having some kind of friendly relationship. Well, the church in 2 John was probably one of a number to have already received 1 John, and this is a follow-up letter specifically to them. As we look at this letter this morning, we're going to see three main points. Firstly, a relationship grounded in the truth. Secondly, a community walking in the truth. And finally, a deceiver not telling the truth. So firstly, a relationship grounded in the truth. You might have noticed that John starts this letter repeating one word five times in quick succession. Truth. Let's read those first three verses again as we go through the sermon this morning. It's only a short passage, so we're going to read each verse again. Verse 1, the elder, to the lady chosen by God and to her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth, which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace Mercy and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son will be with us in truth and love. There's one more mention of truth in verse 4, but in those first verses alone, John says the word truth three times. He actually says the truth, not simply truth or a truth, but the truth. And the truth is the gospel. John says that he loves them 
in the truth. Their very relationship is founded on, is grounded in the truth. They know each other because of the truth. They have a common bond, their belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. But John doesn't just limit that bond to being between them and him. He extends this loving relationship to all who know the truth there at the end of verse 1. There is love between all who know the truth. Some of you might be able to relate to this, but I've been privileged to meet Christians in a number of places around the world. And in many cases, our day-to-day lives have had very little in common with each other. I went to Papua New Guinea, and I met people whose fathers had been cannibals. I couldn't relate to that. (laughs) They lived in a village three days' trek into the jungle. That's the diametric opposite to life in a city like London. And I've had similar experiences in Ghana and Uganda and Nepal. Yet when I've met Christians in those countries, people who believe the truth, people for whom the gospel was the most important thing in their lives, we've instantly struck up a relationship because we've shared in that together. I still keep in touch with a brother, Charles O'Collar, from just outside Bukway in eastern Uganda. We became friends within the space of just a couple of weeks because of this, because of the fact that we both knew the truth and our relationship was grounded in that. But why is this the case? Why is this shared truth so strong? Well, John tells us in verse 2. It's because the truth lives in us and will be with us forever. This is a living truth. And the commonality, it, it isn't external. It's not like both supporting Liverpool or both having a mutual friend. It's internal. The truth is alive, living and active in both of you. And importantly... It will be with us forever, which means that we share a common destination. In Philippians 3, Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. If you're a Christian, it doesn't matter what your passport says, whether it says you're British or Ugandan or from the Peak District, your true identity is found in the truth. And you're going to be spending eternity with those who believe the truth. And in verse 3, to conclude his greeting, John gives us a quick summary of what the truth, the gospel, constitutes. He says three words, grace, mercy, and peace. Those three words encapsulate the whole gospel. He goes on to say, from God the Father and from Jesus Christ his Son. That shows us where these these three words come from. God gives us grace, mercy, and peace. Grace, because we don't deserve what it is that he gives us. Mercy, because we desperately need what he gives us. And peace, because our relationship with God, which was broken, has been made whole. And all of this comes from God through Christ. John Stott said of these three words, put together, peace indicates the character of salvation. 
mercy our need of it, and grace God's free provision of it in Christ. And grace, mercy, and peace will be with us in truth and love, John says. He uses that word truth here to show that they will definitely be with those who believe the truth. There's no doubt about it. If you're a Christian here this morning, that gospel truth is what your relationship with God is grounded in. You would not have a relationship with God if it wasn't for the truth. And the truth is also what your relationships with other Christians is grounded in. And we'll talk about that a little bit more later on. But if you're not a Christian here this morning, these three words, grace, mercy, and peace, sum up the gospel message. Because of your sin, your relationship with God is not peaceful. You're at odds with God. You're living outside without a relationship with him. But the truth of the gospel The great truth of the gospel is that you can find the mercy and the grace of God through the death of his son, Jesus Christ, which brings about peace to your relationship with him. You can have a relationship with God, but only a relationship that is grounded in the truth, grounded in the truth of the gospel. So firstly, a relationship grounded in the truth. Secondly, a community walking in the truth. Let's look down again and read verse 4 to 6. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I am not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. John has had the joy, the pleasure of meeting members of this church who are walking in the truth. Their relationships are grounded in it and their lives are marked by it. But John reminds them of something that he's already written about in 1 John. Clearly something that they have heard before. Walking in the truth is what God commands. And John doesn't diverge from what's already been taught. He then reiterates an old command, love one another. He's so desperate for them to hear that this isn't anything new that he repeats himself again at the end of verse 6. John's pointed out here that these commandments are from God, that they've known about them for as long as they've known the truth, and that they're not new. The start of verse 6 should remind us very much of what we heard in 1 John 3, verse 11. Please just flick back a page or two to 1 John 3, 11. It says, For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Not only had this church heard it before, but we've heard it before. And that's not the only place that he says it in 1 John. He says pretty much the same thing in 3.23 and 4.7 and again in 4.11 and 4.12. 
And all of this is simply reiterating what Jesus himself commanded and instituted for the first time in John 13. That'll come up behind me. Jesus said, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. If these Christians' first encounter with the truth was from John's gospel, which is very likely, and they'd also read 1 John, no wonder John says that they've had this commandment from the beginning. They know that it's a core component of being a Christian, to love one another. And John spells out in verse 6 what it looks like to love. He says that to love is to walk in obedience to God's commands. The idea that John's trying to get across here is of someone walking in step with God's commands, as if they're placing their feet exactly in the footprints that are set out ahead of them, not simply using them as a guide, but following them exactly. William, my son, is just about getting used to being on his feet. The terminology for babies is hilarious. Up until very recently, he was what's known as a a bum shuffler. That's a technical term. He couldn't crawl. He bum-shuffled everywhere. But he's just upgraded, and now he's a cruiser. He shoots along walls as fast as you can imagine. Blinking, he's gone. But he can't yet walk independently. One day, he'll be a toddler. I say that with a smile on my face, and some people are thinking, oh, you don't know. (laughs) My dad bought him a walker, as grandparents do, to try and jock him on a little bit. Now, this walker's great, but only if William uses it with me or with Sarah. Because if we're with him, we guide his steps. I hold on to the front of it, making sure that it doesn't go too fast. I set the rhythm, set the pace, and he walks along fine. But if I let go, disaster, or if he uses it without me there or Sarah there, He isn't walking in step with us any longer. He pushes too hard. His feet trip up over each other. The walker gets further and further away from his body. It's like a hinge opening. And eventually, he falls flat. It isn't funny. (laughs) (laughs) But that's not what we're to do. No. We're to walk in step with God's commands. We're to be guided by him looking to where he wants us to plant our feet and walk in them. That, John says, is love. Now, loving one another can be hard. It's interesting, isn't it? Out of all of the things that John could have specifically mentioned, he says, love one another. And he he feels like he has to remind them that it's a commandment from God and it's not something new. That must be because it's hard to do. Those people who we have the most in common with, those brothers and sisters in Christ with whom we share relationships grounded in the truth can sometimes be hard to love. I personally know some Christians and I can attest to that fact. I personally know myself. So I can definitely attest to that fact. I can be hard to love. So we've got to ask the question, haven't we? Are your relationships with other Christians good? Do we love them in 
and because of the truth. As we come to the Lord's table afterwards, normally we drink together. And Daph will say, as a sign of our fellowship with each other. Well, before we do that, we need to ask the question of ourselves, do we have relationships with other Christians that we need to sort out? We often sing the communion hymn, don't we, that has this chorus. So we share together in this bread of life and we drink of his sacrifice as a sign of our bonds of peace around the table of the king. And the second verse says the bonds of love. And the third verse says the bonds of grace. Brothers and sisters, some of us here this morning may need to mend our relationships before we share communion together. Or we should let the bread and wine pass until they've been fixed. But John's already shown us the way that we can love one another more. To do that is to focus on the truth that we share together. Not focus on our differences, not focus on our likes and dislikes, but to focus on the truth. Focus on the truth itself. Focus on the incredible way that God has loved us and shown us grace and mercy and peace. And as Jesus said, to remind ourselves of the fact that we are to love one another because he has first loved us. And also to remind ourselves of the fact that we share it with each other. Our relationships are grounded in the truth. If we become a community that has relationships that are firmly grounded in the truth, not anything else, but the truth, then we won't be able to help being a community that walks in truth and walks in love together. And the best, most specific way to love someone that you're struggling to like is to pray for them. Now, I've, I've really, I, I want to just briefly say thank you. I have loved Oak Hill this term. Anyone who's asked me that question, after five or ten minutes, I thought, oh, I wish I hadn't have asked. Thank you. Here's one thing that I've particularly enjoyed. At college, when they say the grace together, it's a little bit different from how we do it here, or a little bit different as to how I do it anyway. This is how I normally do it. If we're asked to say, I would normally bore a hole at my soles and my feet. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. The floor has never felt more prayed for. But not in college. Not our brothers in the Anglican church. They do it like this. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is not an exaggeration, is it, Daph? And the love of God and the fellowship. They look you in the eye. It's really hard not to like someone where they're praying for you, looking you in the eye. It's just small, but to me it's a really clear example of how praying for someone positively affects your relationships with, with them. Praying for people will help you love them more. So firstly, a relationship grounded in the truth. Secondly, a community walking in the truth. And finally, a deceiver not telling the truth. Let's just read verse 7 to 11 again closely. I say this 
Because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what we have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. Notice that John starts at the beginning of verse 7 there by saying, because he's linking what's come before with what's coming up next. This isn't a standalone point. Your relationships are grounded in the truth. So be a community walking in the truth because there are many deceivers in the world not telling the truth. This is the reason John is writing this letter to this church. In verse 12, we see that he wants to come and see them face to face, but he needs to get them this message now. There were people preaching and teaching lies about Jesus. They were on a mission to deceive people. John specifically here talks about a strand of first century Gnosticism that denied that Jesus Christ came in flesh. They didn't believe that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. They didn't believe the truth of the gospel. These are missionaries aiming to disrupt and deceive those who believe the gospel, who want to harm this church. John doesn't pull any punches when he talks about these people, does he? He calls them the deceiver and the antichrist. These false teachers are following in their father's footsteps. Not God, but the father of lies. They're walking according to the devil's steps. They're spreading these lies about the truth, and John just has to warn the church about them. Why is it so important? Why is it such a big deal? Well, look at verse 8. There are eternal consequences. Notes again the partnership that John focuses on. What we have worked for. He's in this with them. And he doesn't want them to believe the lies that will make them lose their reward. And that reward that's already been hinted at back in verse 2 is heaven. John paints another picture about walking in verse 9. Except this time, thankfully, it's less like William Elliot and more like Mo Farah. He says that running ahead leads to disaster. Now, I'm sure many of us will have seen Mo Farah win multiple gold medals and races. In long-distance running, you've got pacemakers. Mo Farah stays behind the pacemaker. He's the best in the world at the 5,000 and the 10,000 meters, but he stays behind the pacemaker. He's won 10 gold medals at Olympic Games and World Championships. But he stays behind the pacemaker. No one's ever heard of who the pacemaker is. But Mo Farah stays behind the pacemaker. Why? Because if he runs ahead, he won't finish the race. 
If he runs beyond the pacemaker, if he picks up the pace earlier on, if he tries to be clever with his tactics, by the end of the course, he's going to be absolutely exhausted and out on his feet. His tactic has to be to stay behind the pacemaker, to follow them, to run at the right pace and collect a nice, big, shiny gold reward at the end. For the Christian, if we run ahead, if we believe the deceiver's lies, if we think that we can go before the truth, if we think that we can forge our own way, John says that we do not have God. But if we continue in the teaching, in the truth, then we have both the Father and the Son. That's the reward that we're going for. And John emphasizes how serious this issue is in verse 10 and 11. Verse 10 and 11 isn't at odds with what we've already heard, the command to love one another. It's a part of loving one another. Remember here that he's writing to a church community. So I think that when he says, don't welcome them into your house, he specifically means, don't have these lying missionaries on your preaching rota. There are people out there teaching and preaching falsehoods about the truth of the gospel. Don't listen to them. Don't let them in. If you do, you're sharing in their evil. If this morning I was to stand here and I was to teach heresy, I would expect Daft to physically remove me from the stage. I'd be disappointed if it wasn't a rugby tackle. And I don't just mean an average sermon. If that was the case, I'd be very hesitant to get up in the first place. But if as I was preaching, I said something like, Jesus didn't come in the flesh. The elders here would stop me. That's part of their role. And they wouldn't stop me quietly afterwards. They'd stop me loudly. They'd remove me. They'd come to the front. And they would state the truth. Afterwards, they'd have big questions for me. And I wouldn't get invited back again. And that would be love. Love for you. Because their relationships with you are grounded in the truth. I did think about experimenting with that this morning, but didn't think that it would be the best way to illustrate the point. John stresses the importance of the truth. Don't let them anywhere near you. Don't welcome them in. Don't listen to them. As we close, there are a few tough things to consider from these last verses. Firstly, are we in danger... Of running ahead. Hear what John's saying clearly. He's not advocating stagnation. He's not saying stay still. He says continue. Go on. Go forward. But continue in the teaching of Christ. Run behind the pacemaker. Walk in obedience to his commands. You know you can never graduate from the gospel. There's no second level. (laughs) That doesn't mean that you don't grow. That doesn't mean that you don't learn. But it does mean that you never deviate. And the truth of the gospel is what everything else in your life is built upon. So we need to ask ourselves. Because if we become puffed up in our knowledge, 
proud of what we know, then we're in danger of running ahead. If we're quick to jump onto the next idea, the latest fad, then we're in danger of running ahead. If we don't know the truth really well, then we're in danger of running ahead. Because in order to spot the lies, you need to know the truth. So the next question that we have to ask ourselves is are we growing in our faith? Spending time each day reading the Bible and praying and as we do, asking God to teach us more about the gospel and more about the truth. Are we reading Christian books in order to grow in our faith? When we come in through these doors on a Sunday and listen to a sermon, do we want to know how to walk more closely in line with how God wants us to? And do we pray to ask him to help us do it? All of these things will help us grow in truth. And they'll help us better detect the lies. And there are plenty of liars and deceivers out there. I'm not talking about people who we just don't like or don't do things exactly the same as us. But there are people out there who deny fundamental truths about the gospel. Yet there are plenty of religions who deny the very thing that John mentions here. They deny that Jesus is God in flesh. Yeah, he might be a good guy, nice teacher, prophet, but he's not God. But much more subtly than that is that there are many people who call themselves Christians, many people who call themselves evangelical Christians who don't teach the truth. You won't find them preaching here. They've all heard about daft rugby tackles. But you can easily find them on TV. And if you go on Amazon and go on the top sellers list under the religion and spirituality tabs, they're right there. They call themselves Christians, but they're deceivers. Switch them off. Throw the book away. I read this week that the Gnostics of John's day had one main text that they used to prove what it was they were saying. Guess what it was? It was John's gospel. They'd manipulated and maneuvered and molded the truth into a lie. And they were deceiving people with it. Don't just trust someone because they've got a Bible in their hand. That's why we ask you each Sunday to have a Bible in front of you, to open it up, to make sure that what we're telling you is the truth. We've heard over the last five weeks about Martin Luther and the other reformers and how they spotted the lies that were being taught and that they taught the truth. But this isn't just a first century or a 16th uh, 16th century problem. People do the very same thing today. About 15 years ago, a very prominent evangelical in this country began to teach that God's wrath and judgment and punishment of sin had not been poured out on Jesus when he died on the cross. He taught lies, not the truth. People who knew the truth had to spot that that was a lie, and thankfully they did. And they had to do what John says to do here. No longer welcome him to teach. 
have nothing to do with him and others who agreed with him. Some of you here will have been to New Word Alive. That conference was started up by people who knew that this was a lie and wanted to state the truth. The very first New Word Alive was a whole week of teaching about the fact that Jesus did take the punishment for sin when he died on the cross. Exposing the lie and teaching the truth. People wrote books on the subject that was so important. Huge books about the lie and why it wasn't true and what the truth was. Six years ago, an American pastor wrote a hugely popular book that denied that hell was an eternal reality. Later that year, he was named in the Time magazine 100 most influential people in the world list. The book was not truth. It was a lie. This danger today is very real. So when John tells us that we need to watch ourselves, we do. And in the context of 2 John, because our relationships together are grounded in the truth and we're called to be a community walking in love, if you know that someone is listening to lies, if you know that someone is in danger of running ahead, then gently, very gently, and very lovingly, talk to them about it. Because the consequences are eternal. Run ahead, and you will not have God. But continue in the truth, and your full eternal reward will be God and his son, the Lord Jesus. Verse three, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's son, will be with us in truth and love. That's the gospel. That is the truth. Because we have relationships grounded in the truth, we're called to be a community walking in the truth, walking in obedience to God's commands, walking in love. And we must beware of deceivers not telling the truth. Amen.